Brethren, in just a matter of weeks, as we've heard, we will be keeping the Passover. But the professing Christian world will be keeping a different day one week further. And that, of course, is Easter. Why don't we keep Easter in the church of God? Well, there are many reasons, <clears throat> proofs that we could uh, talk about why we keep God's holy days instead of pre-Christian rituals, which Easter, of course, is one of them. But I'd like to take a look at one aspect today, just one, as we prepare to keep the Passover. Let's go back to the book of Genesis, if you will. Genesis chapter 3 and verse verse 14, we find a, a prophecy that was given way back at the beginning. Adam and Eve had not yet left the garden, but it had far-reaching implications. <clears throat> we know, of course, the serpent had deceived Eve, and Eve and Adam took of the forbidden fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God cursed the man, he cursed the woman, and he cursed the serpent. Let's look at what he said to the serpent. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, and that is capitalized probably in your Bible, appropriately so, because it's referring to the Messiah as her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So what is this talking about? It's a promise, it's a prophecy of the Messiah who would ultimately bruise the head of Satan, of the serpent, would deal with him once and for all, make him pay for his sins. But also the serpent would bruise the heel of the Messiah. He would have limited power to attack the anointed one. He would have the Messiah killed, but the Messiah would, of course, raise, be raised to life again. So, we have here in just the third chapter of Genesis, way back in, even in the Garden of Eden, a prophecy, a look forward to the coming Messiah. Now, of course, we know exactly this is, this is what happened in 31 AD, that Jesus Christ, after his life, he did give up his life. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1, let's just glance here quickly, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse Verse 1, it sums up what had happened. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So we understand that this, as Paul is telling us, he says this is something very important. This is a life or death matter. This is a salvation issue, what I'm going to be talking about. Your eternal life rests on it. 
your belief and your obedience and your commitment, as we heard a, a little while ago, to the one who came and gave his life. And you'll be saved. You'll be delivered from death if you hold fast to this truth in your obedience and your faith. What was that? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which also I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now we understand, of course, that this isn't the whole content of the Gospel. We understand that part of the Gospel is his second coming, setting up his kingdom on earth. But this was the first part. This was his first coming, his perfect life, his death for our sins, and being raised in his resurrection, just as it was predicted. But again, why do some people keep Easter then? Well, let's go back again in time to ancient times. You know, every culture, every ancient culture has its myths, has its legends from antiquity of its origins, often fanciful, often with gross embellishment, uh, stories of so-called gods and goddesses and the things they did, uh, most of the time degenerate and debased, and not something that we, of course, accept as truth. However, oftentimes in these stories, there is a grain of truth, of something that did happen, a corruption of the truth, but a grain of truth. One of the threads that runs through the legends of many different cultures is the story of a so-called God who died and was resurrected across the Mediterranean world and beyond. There was a theme that somewhere in the dim past of antiquity of a great warrior, a hero, a king, who died, was mourned, and revived again. Alexander Hislop, in his book, The Two Babylons, explains this. He says, on page 56, the accounts in regard to the death of the God worshipped in the several mysteries of the different countries are all to the same effect. A statement of Plato seems to show that in his day, the Egyptian Osiris was regarded as identical with Tammuz, or the god of, of Babel, or Babylon. And Tammuz is well known to have been the same Adonis, the famous huntsman of Syria. <clears throat> so there was, a, there was a story of a powerful leader, a powerful ruler, and it was the same story in different religions, in different parts of the known world at that time, different languages, of someone living before the nations scattered. And that had to be, of course, at or before the Tower of Babel, before God scattered the nations. There's a powerful clue of who this is in Genesis. Notice in Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter It doesn't say a whole lot about him, but it does give a glimpse of an individual. Genesis 10 and verse 8. 
We're dropping into the middle of the story of what happened after the flood, the descendants of Noah. Finally, he says, verse 8, Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Some other translations render it, uh, he was the first powerful ruler on earth. Or he was the world's first great conqueror. Or he was a great, uh, he, he was uh, raised up to be a mighty hero on the earth. This is how this scripture is sometimes translated. It says, And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalne in the land of Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria. Uh, some scholars tell us that this phrase went to Assyria actually should be a verb that when he strengthened himself, from that land it could read, when he strengthened himself, he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezim between Nineveh and Kala, that is the principal city. So he seems to have been the first one who really developed the art of, of warfare, and became the first uh, emperor, we might say. But Nimrod met a tragic death, <clears throat> and I know this is not new to most of you, um, but he was likely executed by one of the sons of Noah for his immorality, for his violence, for leading people into rebellion against God. The indication is it might have been Shem himself who executed uh, Nimrod, according to God's will. Again, reading in the two Babylons, it says, Now when this mighty hero in the midst of his career of glory was suddenly cut off by a violent death, great seems to have been the shock that the catastrophe occasioned. When the news spread abroad, the devotees of pleasure felt as if the best benefactor of mankind were gone and the gaiety of nations eclipsed. Loud was the wail that everywhere ascended to heaven among the apostates for the primeval faith for so dire a catastrophe that their champion was dead. Then began those weepings for Tammuz, the existence of which can be traced not merely in the annals of classical antiquity, but in the literature of the world from Ultima Thule, far north, Greenland, northern Europe, to Japan. So we find a, a tradition, a legend of this great warrior who lived, who died, who was mourned, and then who came back to life. Something happened for there to be this legend across many different nations. And the evidence points to it was a powerful leader before the tower or, or up to the Tower of Babel, and that points, of course, to Nimrod. Now, what happened after the death of Nimrod? Again, in the two Babylons, he explains, if there was one who was more deeply concerned in the tragic death of Nimrod than another, it was his wife, Simiramis, who from an originally humble position had been raised to share with him the throne of Babylon. Though the death of her husband was, had given her a rude shock to her power, yet her resolution and unbounded ambition were in no wise checked. On the contrary, her ambition took a still higher flight. In life, her husband had been honored as a hero, 
In death, she would have him worshipped as a god. Yes, listen to this. As the woman's promised seed, who was destined to bruise the serpent's head, and who in doing so was to have his own heel breezed, bruised, rather, an exact reference to Genesis chapter 3. He says the patriarchs and the ancient world in general were perfectly acquainted with the grand primeval promise of Eden, and they knew right well that the bruising of the heel of the promised seed implied his death, and that the curse could be removed from the world only by the death of the grand deliverer. What was he saying? That at the time of Nimrod's death, the world at that time was well acquainted with the prophecy of the coming Messiah. It was part of their thinking. It was was something they were waiting for. It was something that they were looking for, that they were acquainted with. And Semiramis took advantage of that situation. She applied it to her husband to perpetuate her own power. Now all she had to do was prove that he had been resurrected. That's a little tricky. But she used her imagination. She became pregnant, which was not difficult for her. She was an immoral and degenerate woman. And she said Nimrod had come back to life miraculously. The lie was told, but it was shrouded in mystery and smoke and mirrors and sleight of hand. And that's why it's called a mystery religion. And it persisted and it formed the nucleus of this story, told and retold again and again as countries dispersed and scattered and grew. Now, why is this important? Well, let's jump ahead about 1,500 years and see just how pervasive these traditions were. Let's go to the book of Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel went into captivity, we understand, with the uh, captivity of Jehoiakim, the king, around 597 B.C. And six years later, he had a vision. Let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 8 and verse 13. And God was, was showing him the temple, even though Ezekiel was already in Babylon. He took him in vision to the temple. At a time just a few years before the temple was finally overthrown. He showed Ezekiel what was happening at the temple at that time. We're not going to read the whole thing here for lack of time, but let's just jump in at Ezekiel chapter 8 and verse 13. He said, And he said to me, Turn again, and you will see greater abominations that they are doing. So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house. And to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz in the very temple of God. He talks about other abominations before that. He talks about there was an, uh, an image of jealousy before that. But here he talks and refers to women weeping for Tammuz. Again, Who is Tammuz? If you have in your margin, you might have a reference that says a Sumerian fertility god similar to the Greek god Adonis. The same one, 
that we were talking about before. Now let's stop a moment and let this sink in. God had prophesied way back at the beginning of a promised Messiah, of a Redeemer who would bring the people back, humanity back from their state of being separated from God and would save his people, a captain, a Messiah, a deliverer who would be slain but live again. But what the Jews were observing in the last death rows of their kingdom was the worship of the wrong Messiah. It wasn't just that they had a few minor idols here and there, brethren. They had actually switched the Redeemer. They had actually rejected the Messiah long before He came. They were, they were looking at this God, this deity, as the promised one, the seed of the woman. That's exactly what the story of Tammuz was all about. And weeping for Tammuz was mourning his death. No wonder why God said this, these were images of jealousy. Because it provoked him to jealousy. They were rejecting him personally. And no wonder why in just five years' time or so, Jerusalem was overthrown and destroyed. This story, this chapter also is talking about the Spirit of God leaving the temple. The glory of God. Now just in case he's... We don't yet get the point. He says in verse 15, Then he said to me, Have you seen this son of man? Turn again, you will see greater abominations than these. So he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they were worshiping the sun toward the east. And of course, there were 24 courses of the priesthood, so he's, he's basically saying that most of the priesthood, these men are representing most of the priesthood, had fallen into this, plus the high priest, into apostasy. And what were they doing? Well, when is the sun in the east? I know this is a little trick question for you. It's a little difficult. Sunrise. They were having a sunrise service. They were mourning the death of Tammuz, and then they were celebrating his resurrection, the sunrise service. Why don't we keep Easter? Well, because Jesus didn't rise at sunrise. He was gone when they came early in the morning, when it was yet dark. The Gospel of John tells us that. But more specifically... The sunrise service points to a different Savior, points to a different Redeemer, points to a false Messiah. Going on, verse 17, he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it a trivial thing to the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence, then they have returned to provoke me to anger. Indeed, they put the branch 
to their nose. Therefore, I also will act in fury. My eye will not spare, nor nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. As Mr. Meredith here mentioned just a few minutes ago, a lot of people today will say it doesn't matter how you worship God as long as you do worship God, as long as you profess belief in your heart. There are many paths to heaven, so to speak. You have your way, I have mine. You choose your own path. Go to the church of your choice. But God said to them, and he says to us, is it trivial to reject my commandment? To say no thank you to what I have commanded you and to go a different way? Of course not. Before we leave Ezekiel, let's look at the flow right into the next chapter. He says in verse 1, Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. Suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen and had a rider's inkhorn at his side. They went and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. You know, a very sad (coughs) pause here, if you think about it. The glory of the Lord, which had been in the Holy of Holies, which had been His very presence for hundreds and hundreds of years. It was moving out and now was on the threshold of the temple and about to leave. What a tragic moment in Israel's history. But again, why? Because they had personally rejected the Messiah and adopted another. And what happened then? And he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's Inkhorn at his side, and the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. And to the others he said in my hearing, Go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare, nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark. We often read this in relation to the end times. We apply this to our day. How that we sigh and cry over the abominations committed in our lands today. But it seems to be dual. It appears that there were some who were protected at that time. Certainly Jeremiah was in Jerusalem at that time and had not corrupted himself. The same is true for our day. If we sigh and cry over the abominations, over the falsehoods, over the deception that our people are in and are going towards destruction, God says he will help and he will deliver. So let's bring it down. To today. Is it any different today? 
than what the Jews were facing. Our nation is on the precipice of destruction and the whole world with it. And what is the reason? Gross immorality, rank idolatry, violence has filled the land, hypocrisy and corruption. But most of all, perhaps, overarching it all, our people, those in mainstream Christianity, worship a false messiah. A false God. A false Christianity. <clears throat> you know, Mr. Dr. Meredith brings this out in his booklet, if Satan's Counterfeit Christianity. If you haven't read this, brethren, in a while, I think it would be helpful to review this in light of where we are in history today. Especially as we are preparing for Passover and as we are preparing to, to show our allegiance to and our commitment to and our devotion to the true Messiah, the real Redeemer, who has given us the true religion. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul explains what true Christians are to do. To honor God, to look to Him, to worship Him, to acknowledge Him as their God, as in Christ as their Savior. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse, verse 6, he says, Your glory is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Clearly links the Messiah to the Passover, not to an ancient Sumerian fertility cult, which frankly was also connected to immorality, gross immorality. And here Paul is even telling them to flee from immorality. He says, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, not with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul connected Jesus Christ to the Passover, of course. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord that which also I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He was saying, I'm the true Messiah. I'm the one who was promised to come. I'm the one who was going to be prophesied to have his heel bruised. My body was broken. Take, eat. I am your Messiah. No mortal man dying can pay for your sins, he was saying. No sinful and proud rebel that leads men into rebellion against God can take the place of me. Don't change the manner in which I tell you to worship me. It's not a trivial thing. Take the bread. 
which symbolizes my body, broken for you. Verse 25, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He was saying, I'm coming again. I'm the real God. I'm God. I was resurrected. All right, at that point, he was, he was saying, I, I, I will be resurrected. As he took that last Passover. Dr. Meredith explained that a few weeks ago. You know, he talked about the resurrection and how crucial it was. You think about it. How crucial it was, as he said, that there were proofs, that there were eyewitnesses, that there was a lot of proof and, and testimony that we have today written down to prove that he was the Messiah. And think about how important that was as opposed to the false Messiah, which was a mystery, which could not be proven. Why? Because it didn't happen. There had to be proof to show that he really was the one that was prophesied from back there in Genesis chapter 3. That's why the the proof was so crucial. Nimrod could not resurrect himself and was not. He's still on the ground. As Mr. Leake said, he's, he's bones. Less than bones, probably. But Jesus Christ came back to life. And the Passover proclaims, he says, the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's death until he returns. It pictures his death. It pictures his, and points to his coming reign over all mankind. Brethren, we have been handed a precious heritage, an absolutely precious truth and way of life that we've committed to. And that is, of course, the observance of true Christianity. The mystery religion established by Semiramis is not dead. It's not gone. It's alive and well. The worship of the false Messiah that she set up is still around, and it is a stench in the nostrils of God still today. Why? Because it puts forth a false Messiah, a counterfeit. Just as in the days of Ezekiel. And we know it will be given renewed vigor as this age draws to a close. Revelation talks about a system called mystery, Babylon the great, mother of harlots and abominations of the earth that will be in league with the beast at the end. That will cause men to take the mark of the beast. And that mark signifying disobedience to God and defiance of God and defiance of the true religion. But he says to us, come out of her, my people. And that's what we have done and that's what we are doing. That system that Semiramis established will be destroyed in the end and the deception of the false Messiah will end as well. <clears throat> Let's turn over to Luke chapter 10 and verse, verse 17. 
And what a privilege it is that we, we know, we understand, we've been called, we've been given knowledge, not because we're better, but just because God has called us. And what do we do with it? Luke chapter 10 and verse 17, when Jesus had sent out the 70, they came back and they were rejoicing, as we know the story, saying, Lord, even, verse 17, the demons are subject to us in your name. They were pretty excited. This is a, this is a thrill to see that power. Jesus said some interesting, interesting things. Verse 18, he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Think about that for a moment. He said, do you guys want to understand power? I was God. I was there. I created Lucifer. I created everything there is. Fellas, that's power. Okay? Reality check for everyone. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Interesting. You know, perhaps it's referring to them being given physical protection somewhat. But it certainly also seems to be that he was giving them power to cast out demons. And isn't it interesting how that ties in with Genesis chapter 3? He was sharing a bit of his power, which is to trample on, to bruise the head of Satan, of the serpent. And of course, he's sharing that power with us. Nevertheless, verse 20, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Don't just be enamored with the power, gentlemen. But rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Be thankful that God has called you to understand. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. Brethren, you know what he's saying there. Think about it. Read between the lines. No, you don't even have to read between the lines. We are not the wise and the prudent. We are the babes. And that's how God looks at us. We are the weak of the world. So it's Nothing we glory in. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. The same words are for us today. What an opportunity to know the truth 
and to be able to act on the truth and to not be deceived when so many are still deceived. And it's just not their time yet. It's, we understand that. But what a privilege and what an opportunity and what an obligation and responsibility we have. Notice in John chapter 17. John chapter 17. And verse 1. Jesus Christ partook of the last Passover with his disciples. We know in this passage he was talking to his disciples just before he died. Just as it said would happen in Genesis chapter 3. Thousands of years before, as we heard before, he was slain before the foundations of the earth, even. He knew that prophecy. He had inspired that prophecy. He had walked through our forefathers in that prophecy. And he was giving instructions to his disciples just before he met with that horrible death to fulfill that prophecy. John chapter 17 and verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may also glorify you. As you had given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Brethren, Nimrod cannot do that, can he? A false god cannot give eternal life. A false messiah cannot forgive of sin. And a false Christianity doesn't have anything to offer. That's why we don't observe it. Because we've been called out of that. And that's why we're keeping the Passover in just a few weeks. He says, you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To not only worship God, to not only obey God, but to really know him to really have a relationship with him. It's astounding. It's awesome. That's what we're going to be keeping the Passover for in just a few weeks. He says, verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Checkmate. Who's the real Messiah? The one who was God before he came to earth. Nimrod can't even touch that. Can't even get close. The true Messiah came from God, emptied himself. Receive glory again at the resurrection. 
The true Messiah had real authority over all flesh, has real authority, because he was God and not a man. The true Messiah can give eternal life to mankind because the Father calls them, calls us. And as we respond, as we repent, as we change, as we are baptized and receive God's Holy Spirit, Brethren, we will be gathering in just a few weeks to keep the Passover, to acknowledge the true Messiah, and to acknowledge our continuing commitment, as we heard from Mr. Meredith, our devotion, our obedience to him in everything in our life. Let's be ever thankful as we approach another Passover this year for the blessing and privilege of knowing true Messiah.